Good morning. Good to see you all again this morning. My name is Rich Joy. I'm Calvary's interim pastor, and once again, glad to be in the house of the Lord today. Today's Advent candle was peace. We lit the candle and remembered that Jesus is our Prince of Peace, that Jesus brings peace. And you probably remember this phrase that's read every Christmas. It's an important part of the Christmas story. It's from Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Angels appear to shepherds out in the fields, and among some of what they say is this line, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace, on whom, peace to those on whom his favor rests. So the angels promise peace to the shepherds, uh, peace on earth to those on whom God's favor rests. And I read this every Christmas. I teach on it every Christmas. I talk about it. I think about it. And to be honest, I always have this question in the back of my mind, what must this, must this really mean, this promise of peace? Because every Christmas, for many years now, I look around the world and I don't see peace. There's always a war somewhere. There's always a fight somewhere. There's always a disagreement happening. There's a global pandemic. There's something disturbing the peace of this world every year. So I read this phrase, peace on earth, and I ask myself, what is that really talking about? What does that really mean, that promise of peace? And I believe there will come a day when Jesus comes back and sets all things to right, and there will be peace everywhere. But we don't experience that in our world today. But there still is a promise of peace in those words for us today. And we're going to learn a little bit about what that means and what that peace is from two people in the Bible story, from Mary and from Joseph. We've got to start our story, though, with 400 years of silence. We have to understand the context that this Christmas story comes in. There was 400 years of silence from God, 400 years between the last word said by the last prophet in the Old Testament and the first word spoken in the New Testament. This is highly significant. We have to understand what this does in God's people and to God's people. For 400 years, God does not have a voice among them. In the history of God's people, God always had a voice. There was always a prophet or a prophetess speaking out God's word on behalf of God. God's people expected it. They didn't always listen to it. They didn't always obey it. They didn't always honor it, but it was always there throughout the history of God's people till we hit this screeching halt with Malachi. The last thing Malachi says, it's recorded in the Old Testament, is on behalf of God, God speaking through Malachi, I will send a prophet like Elijah, calling as a voice in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That's the last thing that's heard. 400 years pass, and there's no voice from God. Why am I saying this is so significant? Think about what this does in the culture and in the expectation of God's people. 400 years, if a generation is 40 years, that's 10 generations. Over 10 generations, people stop expecting God to speak. They stop talking about God speaking. After a few generations, a new norm arises. Parents are not telling their children that God has an active voice in his people. They're not passing that on from generation to generation. By the time you pass 10 generations, nobody's even thinking God speaks anymore. They're probably even saying things like, well, God doesn't speak to his people anymore. No one's expecting it. 400 years after Malachi says, I will send a prophet who will say, prepare the way of the Lord. 400 years later, an angel appears to a man named Zechariah in the temple. 
And what's the first thing he says? You and your wife are going to have a son, and he's going to be a prophet in the, in the likeness of Elijah. I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. Um, and he will say, prepare the way of the Lord. The 400-year sil- silence is broken. Zechariah doesn't believe it. He doubts. And Gabriel says to him, because you doubted. I, I laugh at Gabriel's words here because when Zechariah says, how's this going to happen? I'm an old man and my wife is barren. Gabriel says, are you kidding me? I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I said it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And because you doubted, that's an important phrase to remember when we look at Mary's response to the same angel. Because you doubted, you will not speak a word till the child is born. So the silence is broken with a priest in the holy city of Jerusalem, continuing what Malachi ended the Old Testament with. God speaks again. And then he goes from the holy city, Gabriel goes from the holy city, speaking to Zechariah, a prophet, to a little unknown hamlet called Nazareth, and he meets with a peasant girl. And he says to her, you will give birth to a son, and he will save the world. Let's read that. I'm going to read the whole chunk of Luke chapter 1, 26 through 38, where Gabriel comes to Mary and, and tells her what's going to happen. Luke 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of a greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. There's so much we can learn from Mary, especially from Mary's two responses to the angel. Mary's a rem- she's a remarkable woman. She's one of the most amazing women in the Bible. I don't think we talk enough about Mary. Here's what I think happens. Uh, Catholics make too much of Mary, and Protestants make not enough of Mary, and we just don't talk about her. Mary is an amazing woman of faith. Her response to this angel, we read it every year at Christmas time, and it blows right past us, and we don't stop and think about it. Her response is almost superhuman faith. It's, it's incredible trust in the Lord. An angel comes to Mary. Now remember the context here. God has not spoken to his people for 400 years. Ten generations of silence. Nobody talks about God talking anymore. No one expects it. No wonder Zechariah was terrified when the angel spoke to him. No wonder Zechariah didn't believe. That would be the normal response. How can this be? God doesn't speak anymore. God's not doing these things. Mary's response sounds the same. It sounds the same. Her response was, how will this be? 
Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel never said, why did you doubt Mary? So Mary's question wasn't a doubt. Mary believed that this was going to happen. Hers was more about the mechanics of it. How is this going to work since I'm a virgin? And then he explained what the Holy Spirit would do. Let's get ourselves in Mary's mind a little bit, in Mary's world. Life was going along pretty normally for Mary. Wouldn't be normal for us today, the life Mary lived, but it was for her. She was living in a small town, uh, ordinary, day-to-day. Probably nothing big really happened there. Nothing really changed. Today was like yesterday, and tomorrow will be like today, and life goes on. Mary was probably 13 or 14 years old, and she was engaged to be married to Joseph. That was normal for Mary's day. She was ready to move into a household with a husband engaged to Joseph, and an angel appears to her. An angel appears to her completely unexpectedly, and Mary's life is disrupted. It's changed. Nothing's going to be the same. She had no transition time, no preparation time, no run-up. She's going along one day, a normal 13 or 14-year-old, thinking about what it's going to be like when Joseph comes for her to take her to his house. Here's how that works. One of these days, we're going to look at this in, the, in light of John 14, because what an amazing picture. The, the custom of the day was a man would come to a household and make an agreement with the father of a daughter to marry her. It'd be like a contract. They'd make an agreement. They shake hands. Yes, Joseph, you're going to marry Mary. And then Joseph goes back to his house, often his father's house, and he starts to build. He builds an addition on his father's house, or he builds another house. He's preparing a home for her. It would normally take about a year. While he's doing that, Mary knows she's engaged. This engagement is as good as marriage. They are committed. There's no breaking it. There's no intimacy, but there's no breaking it. Joseph's working on his house. Mary's getting ready to become his wife. When the house is ready, however long it takes him, when the house is ready, he comes back for her and takes her as his wife to bring to his house. You read John 14 later today, and that's going to give you a whole new insight into what Jesus was talking about there when he said, I go to prepare a place for you. Uh, But we won't go farther into that today. It's just amazing the connections that you see when you read God's Word and how everything fits together and everything's true and how it all hangs together and it works. I get get really excited when I see those connections. In a little bit, I'm going to show you another connection about Bethlehem, but we're not quite there yet. So Mary's in this place where Joseph is building the house. She's engaged. She's starting to get her things together so that she'll be ready when Joseph comes to get her. And suddenly an angel appears to her and says, Mary, before Joseph comes back and we do this the normal way, you're going to have a baby. Imagine how that news strikes a 13-year-old girl. How does that even happen? She doesn't doubt it. The angel said, and she believes God, she trusts him. But she doesn't know how in the world that's going to work. How's this going to work? The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you'll conceive a child, and he will be the Son of God. And her next response? What was her next response? Not, you're crazy. Not, how am I going to go back and tell people that? Imagine going back. The next thing she's got to do after this is go tell her parents that she just met an angel. Who in their right mind is going to believe that? She's got to go tell her parents that she just met an angel who told her she's going to be pregnant. Just want to let you know, mom and dad, nine months from now, I'll be having a baby. And it wasn't Joseph, and it wasn't any of the boys in town. 
It was God who did this. And then she's got to tell Joseph. Joseph, an angel came to me today and told me that I'm going to have a baby. Joseph knows he didn't have anything to do with that. And then Mary says, and the baby will be the son of God, child of God, the long-promised Messiah. The best Mary could hope for is to be ridiculed, ostracized, accused. The worst could be she could be stoned for this. That was the rule of the day. What was Mary's response? Did Mary say, please find someone else? Please find someone older. Please find someone already married. Please find someone not in Nazareth. There are so many ways she could have responded to this angel's declaration that she was going to carry the child of God. What was her response? I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. I read those words every year. Have you heard those words every year? Try to put yourself in Mary's place and picture yourself answering that way. Whatever you say, Lord, I'm yours. You're the master. I'm the servant. Whatever you choose, I'm in. Even if it means everyone in this town will think I've lost my mind. Even if it means everyone here is going to accuse me of wrongdoing. Even if it means nobody believes me. I'm your servant. Let it be as you have said. Mary's circumstances were not peaceful, but I see in Mary's response some kind of deep peace. Now, the words were troubling. It doesn't mean that this is uh, not upsetting. It doesn't mean that she, um, you know, she's not expecting that, that she's expecting everything to go smoothly. But in her answer, there's a solid faith. So one conclusion, and I'm drawing two today when I ask this question: Where does peace come from? My first answer is it comes by faith. It comes from trust. The key I see here in Mary is that she believed. She didn't doubt like Zechariah. She didn't laugh like Sarah when the angel told Abraham and Sarah many, many years before that they were going to have a baby. They laughed. They thought it was funny. Zechariah doubted. Mary? She believed. And she submitted herself to that and said, let it be to me as you say. Is that an amazing example of faith or what? That's an, that woman... No wonder God chose her. How did people see Mary? They saw her as an ordinary 13, 14-year-old girl, a peasant girl, poor, living in a small town, probably not going to change the world, not going to amount to much in her life. That's how people probably saw Mary. How did God see her? I think God saw her heart. God saw a woman of character and a woman of strong faith and a woman willing to be obedient and submit to whatever God asked her to do. No wonder he chose her. No wonder. And the words the angel said was, you have found favor with God. It's as if God was looking around and he said, oh, here we go. Mary, look at her heart. Look at her courage. I bet she would obey and trust me. That's why he, he went to her. Right in the middle of normal. Right in the middle of ordinary. Right in the middle when today's just like yesterday and not much is happening, everything changed. Isn't that how life goes? Right in the middle of normal, right in the middle of ordinary, a medical diagnosis comes through that you weren't expecting. Or you lose your job. 
or you lose a loved one, and everything has changed. And it's disturbing. It's disruptive. Where do you get that peace from that you need to navigate through those things? By trust, by believing in God, by knowing that he's still in control, by saying, I am still the Lord's servant, and he is still the Lord. It's faith in God that produces that peace. Let's move on to Joseph, because he makes me look at it a little bit differently. I'm going to add a second qualifier to where peace comes from when I look at Joseph's story. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had a mind to divorce her quietly. What's really interesting about this, I have to stop here. In Luke's description, he gives verses and verses of description to Mary. And we can read that and and unpack what a powerful woman of God Mary was. Matthew, he says, here's how it happened. Here's how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married. Let's talk about Joseph. Matthew moves on to Joseph. Because Matthew is very interested in showing the lineage of Jesus. If you back up a little bit, Matthew actually lists it out. So you can track from David to Jesus through Joseph. In Jesus' day, if you were adopted... Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus, but he adopted Jesus. If you were an adopted child, you became legally that father's child. Jesus legally belonged to the line of David. And Matthew takes great pains to make sure we know that because the Old Testament says our Messiah will come from the line of David. So Matthew's pointing that out. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Just so you know here, Joseph's options, when Mary became pregnant and Joseph knew he was not the father, his options were bring it out into public and have her punished, send her away so nobody would know, and then he would be the subject of suspicion, or marry her and ignore everyone's opinions. Those were Joseph's options, all of them difficult and painful. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Joseph's described here as a man of obedience a man of faith, a man who did what was right, who followed the law and tried to live a life that pleased God. And he's faced with one of the uh, highest levels of law-breaking when a woman got married, uh, pregnant before she was married, to do the right thing. Joseph's in a dilemma now, to do the right thing. And an angel appears to him in a dream and says, Joseph, take Mary as your wife. 
This whole thing is from God. When she says to you that an angel told her that this child is from God, believe her because I'm telling you, and it's true. I've compared those two announcements in my mind. An angel appeared to Mary. An angel appeared right there to Mary in front of her. And and the angel talked to her about what would happen. And she chose to trust and believe what the angel said. The angel appeared to Joseph in a dream. Have you ever had a dream? It seems so real, and you wake up the next day and you ask yourself, was that a dream? Or was God speaking to me in my dream? And you don't know, you doubt, you go back and forth. It was just a dream, you say. It was just a dream. Joseph could have woken up and said, it was just a dream. Remember the context? God wasn't speaking to his people for 400 years. Joseph didn't go to bed that night expecting God to speak in a dream. It wasn't part of the mindset anymore. The angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, take Mary as your wife. When I think about it like that, I say, now that's some pretty great faith to believe that and to take Mary as his wife. And he was a kind man. Even before the angel appeared to him, he didn't want to disgrace Mary. He could have. A real love abider would have dragged Mary out into the streets and said, she's pregnant, but not with my child. That would have been the right thing to do by the law. But Joseph was a man of mercy, and he was a man of kindness. And he said, let's deal with this in a way that is best for Mary. It might be hard for me to stay here and send her away, but let's do this in a way to protect Mary. So when I, I think about that, I think, maybe that's what God saw in Joseph. I don't know what the people in his town saw, but I think God looked at his heart and said, here's a man of integrity, here's a man of mercy, here's a man of kindness who cares about other people, who's willing to sacrifice himself if he needs to, to put himself in harm's way to protect someone else. This is the kind of man I want have raised my son. And he chose Joseph. Faithful, ordinary. Joseph was probably about 19 or 20 years old. That might have been the only thing in the Joseph story that wasn't ordinary or normal. Men got engaged usually a few years younger than that. Joseph was on a little bit of the older side. He knew he would be judged, but he did the right thing. The right thing in God's eyes was to show mercy to Mary and obey. So the word that really comes out to me when I look at Joseph's story is obedience. When I look at Mary's story, I think trust. She believed. She had faith. She said, let it be to me as you say, I'm your servant. I believe you. The angel never accused her of doubting like she did Zechariah. Joseph, his story is marked by obedience. He did everything exactly as the angel said. When he woke up, he took Mary as his wife. When the baby was born, he named the baby Jesus. His was a walk of obedience trained in him by his love of the law. Those are the two Uh, character qualities. Those are the two factors I see in this story that give this couple peace. And as you read their story, it's anything but peaceful. But there's a steadiness in them. Mary, after the angel left her, and when she went to visit her cousin Elizabeth, what did she do? She sang a worship song. She lifted her heart before the Lord. What did Joseph do? He made sure he did everything exactly as God told him to do. These were people of faith, they were people of obedience, they were people of heart, and I believe that's what got them through. Faith, 
and obedience. Because both of those things declare that Jesus is Lord. I believe in him and I obey him. And when I live in that spot, when I live in that place where I put my faith in him and I choose to obey and follow him, that's where peace comes from. If I try to find my peace anywhere else, it just follows what's going on in the world and in my life. Let's look at Mary and Joseph together. Because now they're, now they're together and they're going to travel to Bethlehem. If they had been experiencing a peaceful life, they are no longer. This is no longer an ordinary life. Suddenly, it's anything but peaceful. Things got bad for them in their little town. They were the object of shame, scornful looks, gossip, exclusion from a good standing in the community, and then things got worse. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. This is a downhill journey for Mary and Joseph, if you just look at life circumstances. This was hard and got harder. It was an 85-mile trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem. 85 miles they had to travel. Joseph probably walked. Mary probably rode side saddle on a donkey because it wasn't proper in that day for a woman to straddle a donkey. So she sat on it, side saddle. 85 miles. To give you some context, if, it's, if it helps you, that would be about 20 miles past Springfield, Massachusetts, if you were going to walk. Walk from here to 20 miles past Springfield, Mass. It probably took them a week, five to seven days, to make that trip. So, men, let's start with you. I want you to just imagine walking 85 miles anywhere in sandals. Not on nicely paved roads, probably packed dirt. You're walking 85 miles. You're walking for five to seven days, stopping to rest. And you're holding the, the I was going to say leash. What do you call it? Harness, maybe. The, whatever it is. <laughs> it's a rope tied around the donkey's neck. And you're walking at a donkey's pace because your pregnant wife is sitting on the donkey's back and you've got to walk 85 miles. You've got to eat, you've got to rest, you've got to take care of your body along the way, 85 miles. But I don't think that was the worst of the journey. I think 85 miles sitting side saddle on a donkey sounds worse. I wouldn't want to go 85 feet sitting side saddle on a donkey because I know I'd slide off and land right on my bottom. Mary's sitting side saddle on a donkey. So let's shift it to you, ladies. How would you like to ride 85 miles, five to seven days, sitting side saddle on a donkey over some pretty rough roads? Does that sound like a fun adventure? Let's add in that you're pregnant. And you're not in the early months of your pregnancy where everything's fun. You're in the last week. If this journey took a week, at the end of that week, Mary gave birth. That means you're in your last week of pregnancy, sitting side saddle on a donkey for 85 miles, probably with the idea in the back of your head is, what if this baby comes now while I'm sitting on this donkey? 
Men, try to put yourself in that place. You're sitting side saddle on a donkey pregnant <laughs> for 85 miles. That sounds like misery to me. And that's how they traveled. And when they got there, there was no place to lay their head. Rooms were full. There was nothing available except a little barn. And they went there into that barn and had their baby. This is an amazing story of courage and faith and obedience. How did they do it? The verse came to my mind from 2 Corinthians 5.7. It says, we live by faith and not by sight. I think this describes Mary and Joseph. I think they had to be living by faith and not by sight. If they were living by sight, what does that mean? I live by what I see. I see my circumstances. I see a crowded town. I see 85 miles worth of road. I see a stinky donkey and a hard saddle. I see nothing good at the other end of it. If I'm living by sight, I'm making all my decisions based on what I see, and I'm making decisions about the peace level in my heart based on what I see, what's around me, what I can understand. If I live by faith, this is a very different deal now. Now I'm living by what I believe, not by what I see. And what I believe if I'm Mary is that this is God's doing. What I believe if I'm Mary is God has a plan. God promised. God said this will be his son. If I'm Joseph and I'm living by faith and not by sight, I'm living by what I believe. And what I believe is the angel said this child that Mary's carrying is there by God's hand. God is in this. God is leading this. So I'm going to trust in God, not in a crowded city. That's the difference between living by sight and living by faith. Let's pull that principle into our lives. If you want Christmas peace in your life, that's where you find it. Living by faith and not by sight. If I depend on everything I see and understand, my peace level goes up and down with my circumstances. But if I believe in God and trust that he's still in control and I'm willing to submit myself to him, now I have peace. That's where it's generated from. Um, one of the things I said I was going to mention was about connections. I'm sure Mary and Joseph saw this, and it had to help their faith. It had to bolster them. It's Bethlehem. Remember uh, last week, I was talking about how God just he puts things in the story to make connections that we discover later that boost our faith. And I painted the picture of Jesus in the manger in swaddling clothes, and the, the wise men bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh as a gift. And then fast forward to Jesus on the cross. He dies. They take him down. They wrap him in swaddling clothes coated in myrrh. It was like God was saying, see this picture? See this picture? They go together. Same thing with Bethlehem. It's no coincidence that they ended up in Bethlehem. You might just think, well, that was where Joseph was born. That's why they went back to Bethlehem. That's not how I see it. I see that God had Joseph born in Bethlehem for a purpose, so that when the census came, he had to go back to Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Let's look back into the Old Testament story and follow the path of the line of David. It goes all the way back to a woman named Ruth. She was a Moabite. She was not one of God's people. Now We're not going to tell Ruth's whole story. You can read it in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament if you want. But she ends up in Bethlehem. And she meets a man named Boaz. 
who's a, a believer in God and a righteous man and a kind man, and instead of sending this foreigner away, he takes her in and he takes care of her and he ends up taking her on as his wife. Do you know who her Ruth's grandson is? Of course you do. David. King David. Of the line of David. Do you know where David was anointed king? When Samuel grabbed David to anoint him as Israel's king, do you know what town they were standing in? You can guess it. Bethlehem. Yes. Now we follow the line of David all the way to where Jesus is born. What town is it? It's Bethlehem. This is what I love about God. This is what I love about his word. It all hangs together. It all ties together. So here are Mary and Joseph sitting in a little barn by themselves with some animals. Maybe a couple of angels in the background. Eventually some shepherds. Later on some wise men join them. But they're having a baby in a barn in Bethlehem. And they're sharing their story again. The angel said to me that the Holy Spirit will come upon me and I will give birth to the Son of God. And Joseph says, and the angel said to me in the dream that Mary will give birth to a son and he will be of the line of David. And here we are. Joseph knows his lineage. I'm from the line of David. We're sitting in the honored little town of Bethlehem. All of it just like God said. That's a faith booster to me. Here's how I apply it today. If I remember things like that, those little details that God made sure were put in place, then I can remember that God is in control. And if God is in control, I can trust him, I can be obedient to him, and that will produce peace for me. Oh, I left out one really um, interesting part of that connection. We had Ruth. Woo! Ruth? Luke, you're going to have to adjust this when you come back up. We had Ruth met Boaz in Bethlehem. David was anointed in Bethlehem. Micah, the Old Testament prophet, said that out of Bethlehem will come a Messiah. And then Mary and Joseph sat in Bethlehem and had that very baby. Faith booster to me. Does that help you? When you remember that God is in charge of the details, that he gets it all straight, that Mary and Joseph didn't happen to end up in Bethlehem. It was part of the plan. For thousands of years, God is in control. I can trust him. I can obey him. And when I do, I have peace. Now, I'm going to call our worship team back up here. And uh, I just want to walk you through my understanding of the sequence of how peace works in my life and in this world. First of all, God gives me peace. When I come to him and I trust him and I submit to him and I say I'll obey you and I take Jesus as the Lord of my life, my first level of peace is peace with God. The Bible says Jesus came to reconcile us to God. We were at war. We were at odds, God and me. And Jesus, through his body and blood, reconciled us. So my first level of peace is peace with God. And what that creates is peace within my heart. I have peace with God. I am a peaceful person inside. Because of that, because God has given me peace, it started with him. It was all his doing. But because he has given me peace, I can now have peace with others. Romans says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. 
We're called to be peacemakers. So if I have peace with God, and now I'm a peaceful person in my heart, and I work to have peace with others because God has given me peace, that impacts our world. So when the angels say peace on earth, they're talking about us as peacemakers who have received peace from God. The worship team is going to, um, they're going to lead us in the song, Joy to the World. Next week is the third candle is joy. And I love this bridge because I think joy comes from peace. That when I have peace with God, that's where real joy comes from. And we're going to celebrate that today. But before I move out of the way, uh, there's a devotional we put out last week. If you didn't get one, grab one today. It's, it's one devotion for each of the four Sundays of Advent. It's not a week's worth. Take this home. There's a page in here where you can read a little bit more about peace, where you can talk about it with the people in your household, where you can pray about it. If you live alone, know that there are other Calvary brothers and sisters doing this same thing with you. Anytime during the week, at dinner, the evening, in the morning, grab this and just remember that the angels, that God through the angel promised us peace on earth.